Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Tinbidi Armias. All week, we've been bringing you NPR interviews with memoir writers. And today, we've got a special pair. Their memoirs told in graphic form. In a minute, you'll hear from the author of a new book for younger readers that's all about the joys of discovery. But first, the challenge of writing about your life after a traumatic event. In 2015, Kendra Neely survived the Umpqua Community College shooting, which killed nine people and injured others. The incident, and her path to heal from it, are the topic of her new book, Numb to This, Memoir of a Mass Shooting. She discussed it with NPR's Juana Summers. It's a sobering look at what it means to survive and the complex set of emotions that brings about. And I should mention that this interview includes a discussion about suicide. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea with skincare sets for Mother's Day in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. For artist and author Kendra Neely, serenity could be found in part of the Umpqua National Forest. This is a little bit of a steep ravine, but then you're like right on the river there was this huge, like, rock cutout on the opposite side that when the sunlight hit it, it was so beautiful. It just had this really beautiful shine about it. And the water was always, like, crazy crisp and fresh. It's one of the places that she loved to draw to get inspiration for her work. What I love about drawing is that it can do so many things for you mentally. When I'm doing things like comics, especially in the early production of them, It's more of a puzzle to solve because you're trying to tell a story the best way and how can you make the characters and background work for you. And in her debut graphic novel, Numb to This, the puzzle that Kendra Neely is trying to solve is her own. Neely is a survivor of the October 2015 mass shooting at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon. Nine people were killed and eight were injured that day. In her book, Neely tells not just the story of the shooting, but also what it's like to work to heal from trauma, even as a steady stream of mass shootings in the United States continues. I spoke with Neely a few days after the seventh anniversary of the shooting. And a note, our conversation includes discussion of suicide. I started by asking Neely how she was doing. I'm doing a lot better than I thought I would. There were certainly... A few moments that were a little rough um, with the anniversary, but it's been um, seven years and I have definitely gained the skills I think that I need to not move past it, but live with it in a way that is like still functional. You know, there are a million things about this book that I want to talk to you about, but one of the things that jumped out to me is the way that you wrote about feeling violated after a national newspaper published a photo of you hugging your friend Josh after the shooting. And it strikes me that that happened seven years ago, and now you and I are having this conversation. So I I guess I want to ask you, 
what can we as journalists do better? What could have gone better in that moment for you? Um, after a lot of reflection and um, also hearing from journalists who were there that day, I think the answer is both on how can we take care of our journalists and also how do we take care of the people that they are, you know, talking to. Because there were several people there that day that I understand they were kind of like new to the new to the field and they didn't receive any care afterwards. They didn't receive any debriefing um, and they weren't really instructed on how to go about this kind of thing in a sensitive and caring manner. Um, I think the best thing is kind of the golden rule of like, hey, if you were in this situation, would you want someone talking to you the way that you're talking to them? One of the themes that comes up over and over again in your book is there are these scenes where you're inundated by text messages and alerts every single time there is another mass shooting in this country. The Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, the shooting at a Las Vegas music festival, Parkland, Florida. And when I look at the pages of the book, the way you've illustrated it, you're just surrounded by all of these tweets and messages and alerts. And it it looks chaotic. But I want to ask you, what does it feel like for you? What is that like? It feels very chaotic in the moment when it happens. And it can be very overwhelming. I think now, uh, in the book, I it was a little bit more chaotic just because I wasn't really dealing with my feelings very well. And now that I have more tools, um, it still hurts. I mean, Uvalde especially, really felt like the wind got knocked out of me. Um, It's not always like that with every single one. And I do kind of take precautions now just so that way I'm not overwhelmed by it. Uh, I think I've been lucky with um, not having a lot of resources to be able to afford constant counseling that uh, the free resources that I have had access to I've gotten very lucky with the people that I've talked to that have been really precise. It's just about recognizing when I do feel that way and kind of just being like, no, it, it, it is okay to feel bad. These are things you should feel bad about. Um, and that helps because then you're processing the motion and you're not just holding on to it and letting it fester and get, and get worse. You wrote about those struggles openly in the book, as well as your suicide attempt. And I noticed at the end of your book, you list a number of resources, including the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 988, and others. What would you say to someone who has perhaps gone through something similar or someone who might be struggling with thoughts of ending their life? Um, I think... Uh, I would tell them that I don't necessarily know that it gets better. I still have those thoughts, and that's okay, because I I have ways to deal with them now. It's not, you're not a bad person for having those thoughts, and um, that there are a great many people, people that you would be probably really surprised about, that um, that would be very upset um, if you were gone. And there have been so many moments that I'm so happy that I didn't miss. Um, and I, I 
just can't express how much joy you will feel in the moments um, when you realize that you didn't miss them later. In the book, you write about when you and some friends came to Washington and went to the March for Our Lives rally on the National Mall. And you quote one of the speakers who says, this march is not the climax, it's the beginning. So, Kendra, I want to ask you, what comes next? I think a lot of work. Uh, (laughs) A lot of work, um, but it's important work. It's work worth doing. Um, Not only with, like, gun control measures. I think there's a tendency for people to say you can't really care much outside of your own community. There's, like, a certain, you know, bandwidth of compassion that people are capable of. But I don't think that that's true. I think that people are capable of a great amount of love and that we can work together to improve the situation for everybody in this country. You end your book with the idea that listening is a tremendous act of love. It requires patience and humility. And that's a really beautiful thought. And I would just also like to add that sharing your story so that others can listen to it sometimes takes a lot of courage. So I'd just like to thank you for sharing yours with us. Thank you so much. That is Kendra Neely. Her new graphic novel is Numb to This. Kendra, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now to a graphic memoir that has a decidedly different tone. In A First Time for Everything, Dan Santat writes about discovery. And not just any kind of discovery, but the youthful kind. Full of first-time experiences, near-infinite curiosity, and of course, plenty of awkward and clumsy social interactions. Santat discusses the book with NPR's Ada Peralta, including the experiences that shaped it, what it taught him in adulthood, and yes, his favorite flavor of Fanta. One summer, when Dan Santat was 13, he left his sleepy California town and went on a class trip to Europe. It ended up being exactly what his awkward, anxious teenage self needed. Dan and his classmates spent weeks trekking through five countries. They experienced new places, people, languages, food, and even a little romance. Now, several decades later, he's detailed that adventure in a new graphic memoir called A First Time for Everything. Dan Santat joins us now to talk about it. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So Dan, um, what were you like before this trip? I mean, what, what kind of eighth grader were you? Um, you know, I would say I was pretty outgoing. I was a pretty friendly kid. I always liked strumming up conversations with other kids and, and being friendly. And then 
somewhere around middle school, it just felt like kids had an edge to them. It almost felt as if my childhood was kind of being forcefully taken because there was this idea of being a man and saying, grow up, you got to toughen up, you got to be a certain way. I think I adapted to it pretty well, but it, it of course, came with its hiccups. Hmm. So this trip changes things for you. Um, of the many experiences that you had, what was your favorite and why? One of my personal favorites is the time I snuck into Wimbledon. Hmm. You have to understand, in the 1980s, kids were just set free to do whatever they wanted. The tour group would just say, okay, kids, go have fun in Paris. Go have fun in Switzerland. Go have fun in London. That was just, it was just normal back in the day. And I wanted to go to Wimbledon. I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. The tournament's going on. And so I, I hopped on to the London Underground with a friend. And I remember getting to Wimbledon and just standing in front of this cute neighborhood thinking, where's the tennis? I was a little panicked. I said, this isn't, I thought it was just going to drop me in front of, of the tennis match. And so I'm just wandering the streets for like an hour and it's raining intermittently on and off. And then I finally find Wimbledon. And then when I get to the gates, you know, there's an official that says, oh, we'll be letting people in for three pounds after 5 p.m. And that was like 15 minutes away. I paid my three pounds, walked on the grounds. And again, like I said, it was raining. So I thought, well, maybe I can go see center court. And I sat down hmm. and then slowly they're removing the rain tarp. The sideline officials are coming out. They're squeegeeing off the grass. The chair umpire comes out. And then John McEnroe and Stefan Edberg come out to finish the third set of the 1989 men's semifinal. And I got to watch it for three pounds. And it was probably the most Forrest Gump kind of experience anybody <laughs> could ever have. And I, I treasure that fully. Um, there were also other experiences. So I'm guessing um, closing your eyes, kissing Amy, the girl you had a crush on, and kissing her accidentally in the ear was not one of your favorite experiences. Yeah. So, so I took some liberties with the experience. In the book, I drop a piece of bread into the fondue pot, and I guess the tradition was that you were supposed to kiss the person next to you when you do that. Amy was sitting next to me, and I'm getting heckled by these really popular girls from my school who were like, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> and in this particular case, Amy agrees. She says, okay, just to get the girls off your back, you can kiss me on the cheek. I close my eyes, and I pucker up, and I end up kissing her on the ear, which is, you know, the most awkward <laughs> first kiss ever. Now, truthfully, what actually happened in real life was I was on a bus to Salzburg, and she was sitting next to me. And at this point, we had already expressed our feelings for one another. And of course, those same girls were, you know, sitting right behind me, and they're whispering into my ear, just, oh, just, just give her a peck on the cheek, ask if you can kiss her, just, you know, whisper to her. And I remember leaning over to Amy and saying, uh, can, can, I, can I kiss you? She was really sheepishly, like, grinning and just nodding, like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And then we go into a tunnel and it's dark for like 10, 15 seconds. I'm just navigating in the dark, you know, just with my <laughs> lips, just trying to find something. And then when the bus comes out of the tunnel, I see her with her eyes fully dilated and her hand against her ear looking at me. And of course, the girls in the back, they just shout out, 
did you just kiss her on the ear? <laughs> and then there's just a rupture of laughter that just fills the entire bus. And I was mortified. And I didn't try kissing Amy again for like another <laughs> like two weeks. I was so embarrassed. So Dan, you primarily write for a children and a young adult audience. Um, do you think there are significant differences between what you experienced back when you were in middle school, uh, the situations, emotions, uh, and pressures that we see play out in this memoir, and what middle schoolers are going through today, what your kids are going through today? What you tend to see is that adolescence is a cycle. You know, you go through these rigors of being a teenager, and then as your kids are growing up, you actually see them going through those same pressures, right? It's just the only difference is that the clothes are different and, you know, music has changed. But for the most part, it's just a revolving circle of repeating events. Um, I think sometimes as adults, we kind of do a disservice by by assuring them that parents are flawless and that we can take care of anything. And now, you know, with my boys, after telling them all the events of this memoir, we're actually much, much tighter than than ever. And, and they're more open to telling me all kinds of things, hmm. mainly because I've shown them that I'm infallible, that I've made mistakes that they've made. And as a result, I think they feel, you know, there's this saying where they say, well, well, I'm not supposed to be your friend, I'm your parent, you know, and I think there is a way to be both. This level of freedom uh, that you describe in this memoir allows you to learn so much about yourself. Um, but at the end of the book, uh, you add a note saying that that maybe kids shouldn't have this kind of freedom. I don't know, you know, drinking beer at 13 or stealing bikes. Um, but you <laughs> turned out okay, right? Right, right. I mean, you know, I think any Gen Xer that grew up knows that you went to a birthday party and then in the middle of the night you snuck down to the TV to watch HBO, you know, something maybe you shouldn't have watched like, you know, Halloween 4 or, you know, or, or, or something, right? <laughs> you don't want to talk about those things. But we did some pretty shady things. But there is something to be gained from living life to its fullest. Hmm. And I think that's something that's important for all kids to have and experience. Wow. So last question, the most important one. You drank a lot of Fanta oh, on yeah. this trip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you still drink a lot of Fanta? And do you have a favorite flavor? I was actually recently in Singapore, and they had this uh, lychee Fanta, which I was really enamored by. So <laughs> I, I can safely say that I think I've had every flavor of Fanta. But as someone who's very nostalgic and, and just loves the classics, <laughs> I, I always go back to my, my favorite, which is orange, which was my first. And you never forget your first. <laughs> Dan Santant, author of the new graphic memoir, A First Time for Everything. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Tim Bidermias. This podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show's elements for this week were produced and edited by Matt Ozug, Courtney Dorning, Hiba Ahmad, Ed McNulty, Gabriel Dunatov, Shannon Rhodes, Rina Nvani, Milton Guevara, Alejandra Marquez Hanse, Andrew Craig, and Melissa Gray. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Host a celebratory brunch for less with 365 by Whole Foods Market, featuring wallet-happy finds like cold smoked Atlantic salmon and more. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.